May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As Ash Wednesday has been approaching and these readings have been on my mind, I've found myself wondering about King David. King David was the author of our psalm, Psalm 51. and Specifically, I've been wondering if from his place in heaven, the great King David has looked down upon our world and thanked God all the more that he did not live in an age of social media. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 today, which David prayed in response to what might be called the most heinous and the most famous sin in all of the Bible except for the crucifixion. And that is David's sin with Bathsheba. Now, if you have read that account in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you may remember the stinging indictment that the author uh, gives when he writes that it was in the springtime of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, but David remained at Jerusalem. David should have been at war with his men, but he stayed back. Tending to administrative matters, perhaps. He'd done the battle thing many times. Why not take this season off? Just kick up his feet for a change. I mean, nobody could say that he hadn't earned that, right? One day he was taking a break from the paperwork. Taking a stroll on the rooftop. And he noticed... Not far away, a beautiful woman bathing. And rather than turning away in modesty or righteousness, he did what most men would have done. He gawked. And it was all downhill from there, wasn't it? So, of course, this woman was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And Uriah was one of David's fiercest and most faithful warriors who, unlike David, did go out to battle. In Uriah's absence, Bathsheba was called to the king's chambers, and she became pregnant. And so David called Uriah home from battle and got him drunk in an effort to cover up David's own indiscretion. And when Uriah proved to be noble, even in his drunken state, staying away from his wife since he had men on the field in battle, David then sent word ahead to General Joab on the front lines to pull back all the troops in the battle except for Uriah so that Uriah would be killed. It is incredible, isn't it, to think that this self-absorbed monarch is the same David that slew Goliath in the zeal of the Lord. The same David that danced before the Lord. The same David that God himself called a man after his own heart. 
I mean, if David had lived in our age of social media, the internet would have exploded with outrage from CNN and Fox News. Tweets and blogs and Facebook posts and unmitigated, scathing comments on the, under the online news articles, all calling for David's resignation, if not his head. But as it was, in his culture, hardly anybody noticed. Hardly anyone dared to question the king. In fact, it may have been spun as a kindness, a gesture of honor to the fallen warrior Uriah that the noble and grateful king had brought the poor widow into his house. David was the king. He could do what he wanted. He behaved treacherously and covered it up and no one noticed. But God noticed. And through his prophet Nathan, David, uh, through his prophet Nathan, God exposed David's sin. Remember, thou art the man, Nathan said. And what we have in Psalm 51 is David coming to grips with the reality of just how far from God he has wandered. Coming to grips with the reality that he was, in fact, capable of wandering so far without catching himself or turning himself away from the temptation. And just like in the Garden of Eve, a Garden of Eden, where Eve's first sin wasn't tasting the fruit, but in deciding to put her own desires above the Word of God. David's first sin wasn't with Bathsheba, or even in the lustful gawking from the rooftop, but in letting his heart slip from trusting and serving God to trusting and serving himself. And I have to say that while the manifestations of my sin may be different, the slip from trusting and serving God to trusting and serving myself is a slip with which I am all too familiar. I'd be willing to bet that you are too. Because you see, That slip from trusting and serving God to trusting and serving ourselves is in fact the root of every sin. In thought, word, or deed, all sin is at its root of failure to trust God. So what we have in Psalm 51 is a David who is doing everything that he can to acknowledge and own up to the distance that he has wandered, to the destruction that he has caused. What we have in Psalm 51 is David seeking refuge in the only place that he could. He is turning to the very God that he has offended. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. In your great compassion, blot out my offenses. David's done with hiding. Everything's on the table now. Everything is laid bare before the God of holiness and justice. And David has the audacity 
to ask for forgiveness. And not because he deserves it. David's appeal, rather, is to the very nature of God, whose property is always to have mercy. And friends, that is Lent. In the gracious ugliness of the exposure of our sin before a God who notices, and yet whose property is always to have mercy, taking refuge in the very God that we have offended, praying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness and your great compassion, blot out my offenses. In our social media age, addicted as we are to indignation and free as we feel to leave incensed comments, we want David's head for such arrogant and oppressive sin. How dare he ask for mercy? Look at what he's done. We can imagine King David in our day on the front page of every newspaper and every checkout line magazine. Right, and angry emoji faces under all the online articles because we don't want mercy for King David. We want justice. We want blood. Until in Lent, we realize that we are King David. Each having slipped in our own way from trusting and serving God. And yours may look different than mine and ours may look different than David's. But this is the reality of the fallen human condition and the root of every sin. And when it becomes personal, when it becomes plain that we are the offending party, mercy begins to look a lot more attractive than justice. So David's looking at what he's done. He's facing the reality of his sinful and wandering heart. All he can do is ask for mercy. All he can do is stare with naked honesty into the reality that his actions and his heart have wandered, have transgressed against the nature, the character, and the commands of the God who loves him. He says, Lord, have mercy. Cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51 is not a prayer of humility, but rather a prayer of humiliation. The plea of one who has fallen from the high rooftop of his self-righteousness with his only hope that he will land in the net of God's saving grace. And in truth, it is the love of God that he has already received. The love of God that he has experienced and treasured since he was a boy. It is this very love that has David not justifying himself and not sweeping his sin under the rug. But taking refuge in the God whom he has offended. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And your great compassion blot out my offenses. That's Lent. And we have this great 
practice and tradition around Lent that we call Lenten disciplines, right? We give something up, we take something on. Episcopalians, we're good at Lent. We give up sweets, we take up, take on more discipline prayer. We give up alcohol or Facebook. We take on service to others. It's a wonderful tradition of the church, but the danger is that we, if we take our eye off the ball, Lent can be reduced to a test of our willpower rather than refuge taken in the God whom we have offended. Lent can, be, can become more about patting ourselves on the back or putting up with self-imposed minor uh, inconveniences than about have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Or if you're like me, Lent can become more about finding loopholes in the system. Right? I mean, if I've given up chocolate, then I've got to suffer through Lent with oatmeal cookies instead. So, <laughs> so how can giving up chocolate be about taking refuge in the God that we have offended? Or maybe a better way to ask it is, what might I give up or take on that will help me pray without ceasing, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me? Two things. The first thing to, re- is to do is to remember with conviction that no amount of abstinence from any vice or luxury will ever cleanse our hearts or renew within us a right spirit. What cleanses our hearts and renews our spirits is the cross of Jesus Christ. We are clean because Jesus has declared us to be clean. And he has declared us to be clean because he died under the consequence of our sin. We want justice. We want blood. It is the blood of Christ that paid the bond for the justice that we deserve. And it is in that grace, that mercy, that our loving God would satisfy his own holiness and justice by bearing upon himself the penalty of our sins so that we might have life. It is in that grace that we take our refuge. So it's not by our Lenten disciplines, but by the sacrifice of God the Son on the cross that we are cleansed and renewed. So we remember that and we cling to that truth with conviction. And the second then uh, is that we give up something that is just very normal and regular in our lives. We give up chocolate. We give up Facebook. We give up some of our time. And each time that we do that, each time when we feel that urge, but we hold back rather than patting ourselves on the back for the small sacrifice that we have made. We let that small sacrifice point us ahead to the eternal sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. So I reach for that cookie and I think, no, God, thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made on my behalf. And if we fail and we take the cookie or whatever it is, we allow that failure to remind us just how much we need Jesus' sacrifice every day. So Lent, Lent is the season of purposeful preparation for both the impossible weight of Good Friday's cross and the glorious relief of Easter's empty tomb. 
But if we get to Easter, five pounds lighter because of our Lenten discipline, but we do not know Jesus Christ with any more intimacy or awe than we do today, then our Lent will have been wasted vanity. Yet if we rest in the reality of the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ, and from that sure foundation we stare with purpose and courage and naked honesty into the reality that our hearts have transgressed the nature of God, then you can in those moments, those moments of discipline, pray without ceasing. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. In your great compassion, blot out my offenses. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We are each, in a very real sense, just like King David. And yet we have been rescued by the cross of great David's greater son. And so this Lent, with the cross and the empty tomb on the horizon, as the assurance of God's mercy, we may be confident in the divine invitation to take refuge in the God whom we have offended. Amen.